Last week, the federal government released their plan to meet Australia's commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. It's a major breakthrough in Australia's climate war, but is it enough? Just in time for the Glasgow Climate Conference, COP26, Grattan's climate change and energy team have released the last report in their epic report series, Towards Net Zero, a practical plan for Australia's governments. With me today are Alison Reeve, the Deputy Program Director, and James Hart, Associate, to discuss where Australia's government should start in the quest for net zero. So, Alison, we might start with you. I mean, what does the federal government's plan include and what do you think about it? The federal government's plan that they reduced last year after quite a, a difficult political process, and I think we should recognise that, that it is a milestone in itself to have got to a commitment of net zero. They've set the plan out around four activities, driving down technology costs, enabling deployment at scale, which means rolling out lots and lots of technology, seizing opportunities in new and traditional markets and fostering global collaboration. Now, none of those are bad things in themselves, but what's missing is the how. There's very little policy that they've put out behind these and most of the plan is sort of seems to be kind of cross your fingers and, and hope that technology developments here and overseas will get us there. The government's claiming that this is not going to cost taxpayers anything. And that's, I think, a little bit nonsensical. Addressing the problem of reducing emissions, it's not about technology versus taxes, which is how the government always sets it up. It's actually about who pays and how much. What the government's plan has done is put all of that cost onto the government budget. Now, that's not free, right? It, Anything that's on the government's budget has to be funded either by raising taxes, which they've said they won't do, by increasing government borrowing, which means that future taxpayers have to pay that money back, or by cutting government spending somewhere else. So you just decide you're going to have lower pensions or fewer submarines or fewer hospitals or whatever. The other thing um, about putting it all on the government budget is that it doesn't scale up very well. Angus Taylor uh, was on Insiders yesterday where and he admitted that the plan is going to cost a lot more than the $20 billion that they've already budgeted. And when you think about the scale of that money going onto the government budget, it doesn't really feel like a prudent economic management decision to do it that way. The other thing I think that is sort of missing out of the, the plan is that they're, they're not really banking on there being much action before 2030. They're projecting that emissions will fall more than they've previously thought, but that's without the government doing anything. They're just sort of staying on a business as usual pathway, apart from in the electricity sector where it looks like they're just riding on the coattails of the state governments who've got some very ambitious renewable energy targets. We haven't actually seen the modelling that the government's put based the plan on yet, so that might give us more detail when we get it. What we do know is that both the science and the economics are telling us that the more that we do before 2030, using the technologies and practices that already exist, the easier and less expensive the transformation will be. And it looks like the government has decided to not go down that path, and that's a bit hard to understand. James, you recently put out a great blog post which breaks down some of the issues that Alison's raised here. I mean, when we talk about getting to net zero, it's not just about reducing emissions in any old way or time frame. It's also about managing a carbon budget. Does the new plan meet the carbon budget or does it need to do more? And I think I know the answer to this, but I still want to hear it anyway. <laughs> 
Sure. So first of all, the reason that we have a carbon budget is because carbon dioxide emissions stay in the atmosphere for a very, very long time once they're released. Um, and it's the total cumulative amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is the principal component driving global warming and, and effectively um, causing the temperature rise that we're already seeing. So if we want to limit temperature rise, then we have to limit the cumulative amount of emissions in the atmosphere. Um, and that's why um, the world has a carbon budget if it wants to stay within the goals of the Paris Agreement, which is well below two degrees and ideally 1.5 degrees. So the way that Australia sets its climate target, so we've got our 2030 target, which is to reduce emissions by 26 to 28% compared to 2005 levels. Um, and then we've just seen the commitment to net zero by 2050. What those two commitments do is they effectively then dictate an amount of budget that Australia is taking for itself, an amount of the global carbon budget. And based on the targets that the federal government has set, we're planning on taking about 9 billion tonnes of the remaining global carbon budget for ourselves between now and 2050. The problem with that is that the Climate Change Authority, uh, using its numbers um, on what is sort of Australia's fair share of the global carbon budget to stay below two degrees of warming, um, would suggest that we only have 5.8 billion tonnes um, between now and 2050. So the government's current trajectory is about 50%, using 50% more than our fair share of the budget. Um, and to stay below one and a half degrees, it's actually even worse. Some Australian authors of the IPCC report, so that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, so some of the authors of that have estimated that Australia should really only emit another three and a half billion tonnes if we want to stay within you know, our fair share of a 1.5 degree target. But to stay within either of those budgets is going to take some combination of a much stronger interim target. So whether it's a much stronger 2030 or 2035 target, but a target sort of in excess of a 50% reduction in emissions or hitting net zero before 2050. So bringing, you could bring the end date forwards. Or I guess the third way to stay sort of within budget is to accept you'll actually overshoot your budget, like you'll, you'll emit too much and then you'll claw it back um, after you reach net zero by permanently storing carbon, you know, like sucking it out of the atmosphere and then storing it permanently and doing more of that each year than you actually emit so that you're reducing the net amount of emissions in the atmosphere. And that would have to be done kind of at Australians' expense. That's kind of the riskier approach. Um, the reason it's riskier is that um, if the world kind of breaches 1.5 degrees of warming, then you increase the chance that you've locked in irreversible aspects of, of global warming, which is you know, part of the reason why at COP, uh, you know, this week and then over the, over the next two weeks, the countries around the world are meant to ratchet up their level of ambition in their climate targets to try and limit warming to 1.5 degrees so we don't have those locked in effects. I know this is a silly analogy, but whenever you say sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, I can't help but think of the giant vacuum cleaner and space balls. Obviously, the best thing to do is probably start right now. But more seriously, I think you made a really good point in that blog post, which is you know, if we don't start now and don't focus on these carbon budgets, I mean, we're essentially relying on other countries to do the heavy lifting in terms of, you know, meeting climate goals across the world. It's not just a, a you know, nationalistic thing here. It's also we do have to work together. There is one planet that we're on and it's not just Australia has this little piece of air that we can fix. That's right. I mean, the point there, Kat, is that if all countries kind of take the approach Australia is taking and, and want to emit sort of more than 50% percent more than what the allocated fair share of a budget is, then globally we thoroughly overshoot. 
the budget and therefore don't meet our temperature goals. So for one country to use too much requires another country to use too little or else, yeah, the global total is, is will be you know more than what the countries of the world have actually committed to. And the thing is, too, it goes against the Australian value of fairness, I think. And I think it's actually kind of quite ingrained in our culture that, to take our fair share here. Alison, I want to talk about the report because, I mean, this is the fifth one in this amazing series. You have a plan chock full of policy recommendations. But I want to know from you, what are the big ticket items you're recommending here? Yeah, Kat, if I was going to summarise it, I mean, I think you and James have already talked about one thing that is, I think, probably... The first point in all of our reports is start now with the stuff we've got now, whether that's flaring methane from gas pet platforms or, you know, putting efficient boilers in, in food processing plants or encouraging more electric vehicles. We don't have to wait for people to invent some sort of magical technology, whether it's the Spaceballs vacuum cleaner or something else in the 2030s or the 2040s. That kind of flows into, I think, the second point that we've made across all the reports, which is start with the policies we've got now. The government's actually got a number of policies in place that it could use to pull through the technology stuff that already exists and make a big difference between now and 2030. So they could make the safeguard mechanism actually cap industrial emissions and push them down. The state governments could use their energy efficiency scheme to do the same in industrial facilities that are at the small end of the scale. Both of those policies would create a high integrity and and functioning market for credits, which would build on the emissions reduction fund, which is one of the government's signature policies. The third thing that we've got to do is to put policies in place so we're not actually making the problem worse. Every decision that someone makes in Australia now that we're committed to net zero is actually going to be locking in emissions or deciding to lock in a lower level. And that doesn't matter whether it's deciding to buy a new car or refurbishing a cement kiln or or whatever it is. So the government needs to put policy signals in place so that those decisions are compatible with going towards net zero. One of the things that Grattan has recommended several times now is an emission ceiling for cars so that we get a net zero car fleet. We've said that you should put in place regulations so that new industrial facilities are using less energy and producing significantly less emissions than the existing ones. And then the other one, which sort of seems blindingly obvious, but I feel that we have to say it, is that If the government has committed to net zero, they should stop subsidising new fossil fuel projects. Because as Tony Wood, our program director, is very fond of saying, that is like driving with your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. It is actually locking in an increase in emissions here and an increase overseas at the same time that we're trying to go towards zero. And that is also the hot topic for the moment because uh, it was discussed at G20 and I'll, I'll be interested to hear what you say about this. But one of Australia's biggest issues in transitioning to net zero is our reliance on exports like coal. What's going to happen as other countries commit to net zero goals here? Yeah, so I mean, at the at the G20 over the weekend, um, there was a proposal that the G20 commit to um, phasing out coal and that proposal did not get up in the final communique um, because the number of countries were quite resistant to that. But I think it's important, and I actually feel like I'm on the same page as the Prime Minister here, to say, let's just not look at the promises, let's look at what people are actually doing. And when we look at who we sell coal to and who we sell LNG to, most of those exports go to countries that have said 
they are committed to net zero. So just to put the numbers on it, it was about $102 billion worth of coal and gas that were exported in 2019-20. 85% of the gas, at least 74% of the thermal coal and 54% of the metallurgical coal went to countries that made net, have already made net zero commitments. And some of those, particularly the stuff that's gone to Japan and South Korea, have also gone to countries who have made quite ambitious or want to make quite ambitious cuts to their fossil fuel use by 2030. So the short answer to your question is that our markets for coal and gas are going to shrink. We don't know how fast and we don't know by when. Angus Taylor sort of pointed out when he released the government's plan that markets can look like they're moving very slowly and then they hit a tipping point point. they sudden, suddenly change very quickly. And that is most probably what will happen with those coal and gas markets. They will look like nothing's happening for a while and then they will just head downwards very fast. The other thing that I think is interesting when you delve into the government's plan is that even though they're not saying out loud that coal and gas exports are going to reduce, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of maintain this position that we will still have our, trans, our traditional markets, they've set these goals that are absolutely going to smash global demand for coal, for electricity and coal for steelmaking. One of the things the government said it's aiming for is to have solar at one and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Now, if you've got solar electricity at one and a half cents per kilowatt hour, there is no world where you would also burn coal because it will absolutely undercut the price of burning coal for electricity. And similarly, they've said they want to get hydrogen down to $2 a kilo. There is no world where you have hydrogen at $2 a kilo that you're also using lots and lots of coal for steel making. So even the government's own plan here, I think actually has a implicit assumption in it that the coal and gas markets are going to shrink quite quickly as other countries move and as technology improves. And I mean, it's not the same industry, but we saw that a perfect example of that when the photography industry transformed to digital and all of a sudden people who stuck with the traditional cameras like Kodak went out of business. What I want to know is how can we maintain our economic position while transitioning here? One thing that's actually on our side here is that as other countries move towards net zero and as we move towards net zero, we're going to need a lot of minerals for that, right? We're going to need iron ore to make steel for wind turbines. We're going to need alumina to make aluminium, which is used in the framing and for solar panels. We're going to need lithium for batteries for electric vehicles and so on. And Australia has got really good supplies of these minerals and we've also got a, um, a world-class mining sector, right, a mining sector that is very efficient and very good at digging things up and also very good at getting good prices for them. And so if we keep our current market share in some of those minerals like iron ore or lithium or silicon or alumina and so on, those exports are going to be worth double what coal exports currently are for the Australian economy. Now, there's one caveat on that and that is maintaining foreign investment. So nearly half of foreign direct investment in Australia in 2019 went to the mining sector. And most of that investment comes from countries that have put in place what's called carbon disclosure regulation. So that means that banks and insurance companies and investment funds and so on are required to assess the climate change risk and the carbon risk of all of their investments and disclose it. And the reason for that is because climate change and carbon are a systemic risk to the international financial system. And it's also because a lot of banks and so on and insurance companies and so on 
are realising now that they don't want to invest in high emitting industries because of the financial risk to their returns. So if we want to capitalise on that critical mineral growth, we are probably going to lead a, a lot more investment. But the people who are investing in it are going to want to know that we've got carbon under control in that sector. So they are going to be pushing those companies to be, you know, using more renewables and less diesel or finding new ways of doing processing on minerals that doesn't produce so many emissions and so on. And so that is why those sectors need to get started on that decarbonisation pathway now, because otherwise that investment will go elsewhere. We are not the only country in the world that has got large supplies of minerals and if there are other people who can do it with lower emissions than we can, that is potentially where that investment will go. James, this report also includes how to reduce emissions in the electricity sector, something that Grattan has done in-depth work in in previous reports. James, you love talking about the national electricity market. You've become quite the expert in your time here. And this is one area where emissions are going down. What are we doing right here and what should we be doing more or less of? Sure. So in a nutshell, what we're doing right is we actually do have technological solutions that are as cheap or cheaper than incumbent technology, um, which are allowing emissions to come down um, without you know, threatening the affordability of electricity supply. Um, so if we look at the sort of the major grids um, in Australia, uh, emissions are projected to fall substantially between now and 2030. So the national electricity market is the biggest of those grids, and that covers most of the population of all of the states and territories, except WA and the Northern Territory. Um, and in the NEM, the national electricity market, emissions are projected to fall from 142 million tonnes today down to 64 million tonnes by 2030. So that's a huge drop. There's more than half of the emissions will go this decade. Um, And that's actually a big step up as well in terms of the drop that's expected compared to the emissions projections that the government released last year, where they thought that by 2030, emissions would still be around 88 million tonnes. And and the difference between that projection and and the one that's just been released um, is that in the interim, states have committed to even more ambitious policies Um, In particular, uh, the New South Wales government has its electricity infrastructure roadmap, which wants to see another 12 gigawatts of renewable energy built by 2030. So it's really that state action that's that's driving these really fast reductions in emissions that are expected. So the other thing we're seeing kind of, and it's not um, an independent phenomenon, like if you bring in a lot of this new supply, it shouldn't be a surprise that we're also seeing coal-fired power stations bring forward their um, expected closure dates. Um, and the electricity that they supply is likely to be replaced with more renewables. The challenge that this brings and that all of this extra renewable energy um, is associated with, well, there's actually kind of three three big ones. Um, the, the first one is, is technical challenges associated with keeping electricity grids operating in a secure way as, as you transition from traditional um, plants to, to renewable plant. And that's kind of a very immediate near-term problem. The second one is uh, transmission. So... How do you get um, the electricity from the sites where there's good wind and solar to cities? And also, how do you connect up parts of the NEM better so that when you know it's uh, still or cloudy in one part of the NEM, there's electricity supply available elsewhere? And the third challenge is how do you otherwise firm renewable supply? Because we know that you know, transmission will help, but it's not the only thing that you need. You are going to need some dispatchable capacity, so things that can turn on and off, like batteries or pumped hydro plants, 
um, in the near term as well, gas plants, gas peaking plants, to make sure that there's electricity available when consumers need it. Uh, potentially on the other side of, of that dispatchable capacity, the other thing you could have in future that, that helps to firm the grid is large sources of flexible demand. So things that um, can turn down when there's less renewables available um, and, and building a hydrogen industry in Australia that, that is based on um, electrolysis, which is using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. That industry um, potentially could be that source of flexible demand that allows us to balance the grid um, at, at low cost. There is a lot of work to be done to, uh, particularly on, on government on the government side, to solve these challenges um, and to make sure that we actually do see the emissions reductions that are projected. On the transmission front, that's pretty actually a, a hard problem to solve because it's a big amount of infrastructure that's required um, over quite a compressed time frame. Um, and there are real risks that if infrastructure comes too late, it comes after you know a coal-fired power station breaks down because of its age, um, that there could be reliability implications. We've also seen a lot of um, controversy around this issue of, of, of firming renewable supply um, because the states and the federal government are currently working on designing a capacity mechanism um, that has been criticized by, by some for um, the potential that it might actually keep open coal and gas plants longer than otherwise. Um, but really what, what the states and the federal government need to be working on um, is uh, designing that mechanism so that it does give you the investment in reliability in um, reliable sources of electricity that you need um, while being consistent with the long-term goals, the long-term decarbonization objectives that we that we have um, now that the federal government has committed to net zero by 2050. So the electricity sector, you know, it's on balance. One of the sectors where, you know, we're seeing a lot of progress being made in emissions, which is, you know, really fantastic. Probably not all smooth sailing. You know, there's still work to be done. Um, governments are moving in different directions. You know, we've got some states with renewable energy targets, some states with roadmaps, some states with deals with coal-fired power stations, um, and then the federal government building its own gas plant. So all of the sort of the tiers of governments are moving in different directions, and that's creating a lot of uncertainty in the electricity sector and making it hard for investors to invest. But if we can resolve those issues in the near term, then there's no reason to think that the electricity sector will hold us up in moving towards net zero. Yeah, and you touched on something that's been probably one of the overarching recommendations in your reports is, you know, that working together of states and federal level in terms of um, enacting this plan. I mean, we can't have a piecemeal approach because I think, you know, yourselves and Tony would have made it very clear that going down that route is expensive um, and it's actually more cost effective to have a unified plan here. Critics would say that we should be aiming for zero emissions, not net zero, especially in the electricity market. Why shouldn't we be aiming for a completely renewables-based electricity system? So what it comes down to is balancing cost with reliability and emissions. So, so getting to, say, 70% renewables, really easy to do it at no extra cost to to consumers you know at 90% there might be some costs but it really depends on you know how quickly we see changes in in the price of different technologies once you're trying to get the last few percent out and sort of creep up towards 100% renewables that's when there start to be there starts to be more significant costs associated with keeping the electricity supply reliable particularly over periods of 
um, low solar output, low wind output, and high demand, which we occasionally see during winter. Trying to find a zero emissions solution to make sure that you've got enough electricity supply over those times is the thing that's really that, that makes the, that last few percent quite expensive to, to resolve. And at the moment, sort of the most obvious way that you would fix that is, is by burning uh, a small but important amount of gas during those periods and then offsetting those emissions if you want to reach net zero. But what could change that conclusion is if the economics of both renewable energy and zero emissions firming solutions change faster than we expect. And you know, particularly if the government's own plans for getting solar energy down are realized, then this conclusion might change. The other thing that might change as well is, is what the cost of offsetting emissions is in, you know, say 2030, 2040, 2050. Um, if the cost of offsetting emissions rises very substantially because there's a lot of demand for offsetting from the other sectors of the economy um, and, and a limited amount of supply of offsets, um, then it will be actually quite expensive to, to burn gas if you have to offset those emissions. And that would, again, encourage you to move even closer to or move right to 100% renewables. So it's not a question of um, can it technically be done? I mean, at the moment, the Australian energy market operator is working to figure out technically how they can um, manage a grid that is 100% um, based on renewables, and, and they want to solve that problem by 2025. But ultimately, it it's comes down to a question of the economics of what, where is the best place to get to. There is no doubt that the electricity system will move to very, very high levels of renewables, and whether it's 100% by you know, 2040 or 2050 will just come down to um, economics that we'll know a lot more about in a decade's time. And I think it's a good thing that we keep reassessing as time goes on. It's not that we make the recommendation now because things will change. And, um, you know, so I'll just have to talk to you in 10 years' time, James, and get your take on it then. Alison, governance and accountability are important here to make sure we're meeting our goals. And we've touched a little bit on this, but you discuss enhancing the role of the Climate Change Authority in this report. What is the authority's role now and how would you like to see this expanded? The Climate Change Authority was originally set up to provide independent advice to government about emissions targets and policies to reach them and also to do reviews of policy. So, you know, what, what you were exactly just what you were saying about the energy market that we need to keep reassessing and keep coming back and seeing, you know, what's working and what's not. Since 2014, the authority has not been asked to provide any advice on targets. And so they had no input, for example, into the government's net zero by 2050 plan. We would like to see that role return. The reason for that is, like James was saying earlier, we it's really critical that we stay inside that emissions budget from now on. And that is going to mean some really hard choices for governments to make. And it doesn't matter what colour of government you're talking about, none of them like making hard choices, right? So it's really useful to have independent public advice about what the emissions budget should be and therefore what our interim targets should be on the way to net zero. And we think the Climate Change Authority should be doing that. It's not unusual. It's actually exactly what the UK and New Zealand do um, with their emissions reduction policies. The other thing that we thought the Climate Change Authority should do um, is take over the role of doing the emissions projections every year. So the government every year publishes um, this document that tells us where emissions have been, but also where they think emissions are going. And now that we've committed to the net zero target, that data about how we're progressing and whether we're on track actually becomes a lot more important. And 
we think it should be treated with the same kind of seriousness that you treat other economic data, whether that's inflation or employment numbers or, or whatever else. And that means it should be done independently rather than by one of the government departments. And it should be sort of done regularly and we should know when it's coming out, just in the way that we know that the inflation data comes out once a quarter and we know that the employment data comes out once a quarter. And that way Australian companies and also Australians can see what the information is that the government is using to inform its choices. So the big climate conference is going on right now. James, what can we expect from COP26? What would you like to see happen here? Uh, I think what we'd like to see and what we'll actually see, um, there's always going to be a gap between the two. There's two themes that um, I think are going to emerge from from the conference. One is around near-term targets um, and the other one is around adaptation. So kind of on the near-term targets, you know, we're already seeing a lot of other countries around the world increase their level of ambition for 2030. Um, Australia has said that it will meet and beat its existing 2030 target, but it won't actually bring a higher target to COP, nor has it said anything about what it plans to do about 2035. It is unlikely that the Australian government will commit to anything, given um, uh, kind of the announcements that we've heard over the past several months. But nonetheless, it is important that at some point we set a 2035 target because that will help define our trajectory towards 2050. And in our series of reports, we've said that setting that target um, should actually be the responsibility of the Climate Change Authority. As for adaptation, uh, this is a particularly important area, both for Australia and for our Pacific neighbours. Even within Australia, we've seen that the costs of climate change are starting to be felt already. And what that means is that as the climate continues to change, there will increasingly be calls um, on the federal government's budget to uh, help Australians adapt to more extreme weather uh, increased likelihood of heat waves and all of the sort of uh, associated changes in our economic structure that will result from this. Um, so the cost of adaptation is only going to go up and that means governments will have to make hard decisions starting now. Kat, the other things, um, other two themes that are likely to come out in the um, at the, the COP meeting, one is mobilising finance. Again, um, people who read our industrial report or listened to the, po- the podcast that we did on that her- would have heard us talk about a couple of ideas that we had about how to get the finance in place for the very large industrial transformation that we're going to have to make. The other thing that is an important part at this conference, though, is also about how we mobilise finance to help countries that are still developing to develop in a way that's cleaner. That's somewhere where Australia really should step up. We used to be a, a leader in this field. We were a large contributor to what was called the Green Climate Fund, which was a, a big fund that helped um, particularly smaller um, developing countries to develop, um, to, to build infrastructure, to build renewable energy and, and all of that sort of stuff. The other reason that we should step up really is because there's a bit of a geopolitical competition internationally for influence on de- on developing countries and that is particularly playing out in the Asia-Pacific, which is our region. So just even if you set climate change to one side, we absolutely should be in this with, you know, boots and all in terms of helping to mobilise that finance. The Last bit of the conference, but potentially the part that will take the longest to settle is what's called the rule book. Ever since the Paris Agreement started, the thing is when you have an international agreement, you need to have a rule book that goes with it that says what you can and can't do under the agreement and how you'll report and how you'll set your data out and when you'll tell people about your targets and all of that sort of thing. And that rule book is still settling. 
The bit of it that is important for Australia, I think, is the rules about trading credits, carbon credits internationally. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, because as we said in our offsets report, Australia is going to have emissions in 2050 that are going to require offsetting because we either will not have invented the technology that allows us to do it or we just will not have deployed enough of it. And just to emphasise, this is not about offsetting instead of emissions reduction. It's about the bit that's left when you've done all the reductions that you possibly can. Offsetting has been a really controversial thing internationally. It has had a really bad reputation, but the thing is that we are going to need it. So Australia should be fighting for rules that maximise integrity and maximise transparency in that process and really put the emphasis on emissions reductions before just deciding that we're going to plant a whole lot of trees or something to try and and deal with the problem. Well, thank you so much, James and Alison, uh, to talk to us about your final report in the series. I have the feeling it's going to be an eventful two weeks uh, with the COP26 conference running, and we will have you back on the podcast in two weeks' time to do a wrap-up of what's happened or not happened at the conference If you'd like to read any of the reports in this series, you can read them for free on our website at grattan.edu.au. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us, we'd love to hear from you on social media, on Twitter at Grattan Inst and at Grattan Institute on all other social media channels. As these are uncertain times, we always say please take care and thanks so much for listening. 